so when I went to see Dick, when it came out, it must have been a while ago, I left a book. I was so enthralled. I left a book in the theater, and the thick the book was, if you're a real Nixon buff, you'll know, it was Jerry Voorhees' book. Uh, do you know Do you know that? He's the, he's the guy who uh, Nixon uh, beat for his first congressional race. Oh, okay. I thought he was the bad guy from uh, Friday the 13th. No, no. He was like this very upright Boy Scout type uh, liberal congressman that Nixon red baited out of office. You were so taken with the world's foremost Nixon dramatization that you left your book behind. Exactly. My Nixon book. Speaking of Woodward, of the... Um, yes. Of the yes, Trump yes, news. Yes, and yes, obviously, yes, like, yes. you're not in a position where you necessarily have to hold information. I assume that you've never really... I can't hold anything. That's why, you know, working on it with Hollywood, I really need to learn what the rules are, you know. Well, also because you're writing about stuff that's 40 years and older. So there's not a lot of like super current events that you have to wait for your book to be published. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's stuff within the book that's, you know, could be perceived as hot. No one has seemed to have noticed that I had caught Ronald Reagan in a pretty nasty quid pro quo in 1978 or 1979. I, I've gotten to the point where I've done so many interviews. I, I'm kind of like, I, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm, I'm trolling the interviewers to test their, test their knowledge of the book. There's a chunk where I, um, I've, there's a letter that was published in a book of Reagan letters. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And it's a letter to the president of Mexico. And it's basically like, you know, I, I do know the head of, uh, Northrop aircraft and if you make this aircraft order it would be really great <laughs> and uh and I just kind of looked it up and it turns out that like you know the head of this corporation has like a long history of uh very shady donations to politicians in exchange for political favors uh so I think I kind of nailed Reagan dead to rights on this one and I was just like Wow, maybe I should do an op-ed on this. It's kind of, uh, but I actually love to. Um, you know, the process is obviously very long, and uh, during a lot of uh, these years, I've had various sort of jobs where I've been kind of blogging, like for the Nation, or I had a weekly column for Rolling Stone Online. So I'm always kind of doing these kind of notebook dump style essays. Like I did a big one on that you might be interested in um, in the Washington spectator where i had like a monthly column on star wars and kind of a turn towards the infant infantilization of popular culture oh star wars the movie, movie. series not the yeah yeah not the not, so i'm out you know i'm i'm always um scooping myself <laughs> i can't you know i'm i i can't i can't help it you know i just love to teach show people what i found what's really funny about that specific example is that is a very I mean, the way the way you phrase it is a very Trumpian way of putting it, too, of just like, hey, I may have this thing that you saying it without exactly saying it. Yeah. And Reagan is not supposed to be that kind of guy. So, yeah. So the Woodward thing, I saw his justification. And it- I'm disgusted. I'm completely disgusted. I think it's completely inexcusable. And one of the things I find most disturbing is, you know, I did a tweet, you know, basically like how 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 dare he you know, not reporting what he knows in a timely fashion. And I've been kind of disgusted at the response of people just kind of like game gaming this out. Like, oh, well, maybe he thought that it would help more in September or, uh, well, we didn't really know what we know now. And I find that really telling of the public mind right now that everyone, you know, I, I kind of dreamed of doing this book about how everyone in America has turned into 
what used to be called a flack, a public relations professional, you know, or a pundit, right? And everyone is uh, savvy, right? Uh, moral questions, political questions are all uh, evaluated uh, on this axis of personal advantage and uh, the fact that, you know, polling culture has become so dominant in political discussions and people are thinking about like the third order derivative about one act, what one, you know, a decision made by a politician, you know, will have, you know, uh, in the 12 dimensional chess game, whereas, you know, you know, I've, I've been watching, um, I've been watching a French village right? the show about the French resistance. And, you know, it's basically about these decisions you have to make in real time, you know, which you're basically faced with two impossible situations of, you know, saving lives or, um, or accommodating. Part of what's interesting about Woodward's response is I think he did frame it in a way that was tied to the timing of the election, which like at the end of the day, I don't know that that's, that's not his job. And I'm not, I'm not Mr. Like objective journalism. You know, I think that advocacy journalism is, you know, just fine. But there are just certain very basic uh, moral lines that have to be drawn in my eyes. And I've never liked that guy. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't around, you know, when he was you know making his reputation. I was born in 1969. But I once wrote a review of one of his uh, George Bush books. There were three of them. And one of the things I discovered and reported on and was quite censorious of in the review was that I think I compared like the second book or the first one to the third one. And his depiction of George W. Bush was completely, completely different. One of them was heroic and then it got less and less heroic. And as the public opinion towards him shifted and the real smoking gun, to use the Watergate, memo, uh, uh, Watergate metaphor, uh, was that he actually reported the same interview, the same Oval Office interview with George W. Bush, and included language in the last book that was damning, that was not in his reporting the same interview in the first book. Basically, that in the first, in the first, in the first book, it was. George Bush saying we had enough information about weapons of mass destruction to you know justify this, and then in the third book, he's, uh, Woodward says it took him six minutes to you know try to even defend himself. You know after I asked him about it, you know you know I mean the definitive piece about that about how Woodward does does business was by uh, Joan Gideon in the New York Review Books many years ago, and she called it you know political pornography. Right, political, you know, sort of like this kind of spectacle where you get to kind of peek behind the wall at, you know, powerful people doing powerful things. And yeah, I think he, he long ago ceased to serve a useful civic function. I'm very moralistic when it comes to this stuff. Michael Wolff was kind of the next logical step of that, right? I mean, that, that was really the, at least at the time, that was kind of the ultimate political pornography of the Trump era when Fire and Fury right. came out. Right. And, you know, a lot of the kind of books I write about, you know, presidents, a lot of it, you know, partakes of that kind of pornography of power, like, you know, um, fly on the wall, you know, kind of scenes of how the sausage gets made. And, you know, that that really doesn't hold much appeal for me. Not my problem, not my issue. I suspect it's a hard line to walk, though, because obviously, you know, you are an entertaining writer and you are doing oh, I don't mind entertaining. <laughs> yeah, but you are doing your best to keep people, you know, engaged 
over a 900 page book. It goes other ways to entertain than, uh, you know, putting words in people's mouths and, you know, creating little, uh, dramatic, dramatic, dramatic miniatures, you know, about, you know, what goes on in the Oval Office. I do suspect that that specific instance is a case of, I mean, 9-11 just kind of broke our collective brains. Oh yeah, <laughs> totally. I don't think we've, we've come to terms yet with, with my wife and I talk about this a lot. We were both in New York and, and my wife was working downtown. Uh, she wasn't there that when it happened, she was, she was at, uh, at a gym, I think. But, um, you know, I knew people who survived uh, the building. And I've written a lot about this, actually, when I was in Blog Earth Nation, about how America kind of surrendered to a culture of fear. You know, I compared how when Eisenhower had Khrushchev as a guest of state and, uh, you know, he went to Disneyland and got a state dinner and compared that to when uh, Ahmadinejad went to speak at the UN and it was like treated like, 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 like America's national security was, you know, everyone just kind of curled up in a little ball. I even talked about like the, the example of the woman maybe five or six years ago who, um, smashed her car into the white house gate you know and like next next thing you know like 80 officers are um you know at her apartment in hazmat suits you know and it's clearly just this is like disturbed mentally a woman and i say when 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 a guy you know climbed over the white house wall in 1975 it was like a one-day story you know it certainly feels like there are multiple unprecedented things happening on a daily basis such to a point that somebody will mention something to me from you know, a month or two ago or when we remember the 2016 it. campaign. And it's totally, yeah. Like, like the, I didn't um, remember Michael Wolf. I, I was like, who's Michael Wolf again? <laughs> the, the thing I, I point to a lot is the, uh, do you remember in the 2016 campaign when uh, Trump tweeted a picture of Hillary with the star of David? I do. Yeah. It was a sheriff star. Sheriff I mean, star. I, it was a big deal for about a day and I, I, I had to be reminded of it. Yeah. Something that I ask people who uh, were around for Nixon is mm-hmm. how unprecedented the current moment feels. And, and two one, all of them who really lived through it tell me that this moment does feel different. But, you know, as somebody who's been steeped in up to and including, mm-hmm. you know, that period of time, is it really that different? Is it just the way that things I are mean, framed? different is, you know, every every period is different. And you know, we, we, we tend, to, tend to, like, the way historical memory works and is represented tends to be very schematic. People will be like, is this 1968? Is this 1972? Is this, you know, whatever, you know, and a lot of times, you know, like, well, they can't be both, you know. You know, the Saturday Night Massacre was was genuinely terrifying, right? I mean, the idea that you know men with guns were you know keeping keeping lawyers away from their offices, you know. I mean, it really the word fascism was, and, and then you know while that was happening, you know Henry Kissinger is announcing you know a, an increase in America's alert level, you know, and there's like a war going on in Israel, and that was a very you know frightening juncture. But at the same time, I think something that must have felt very different was that there was some reasonable sense uh, at that time that there were grownups who were in charge. And um, I'm not so sure that, you know, um, that's, that was an entirely in a healthy reaction, you know, somehow like the, you know, kind of Walter Cronkite and Sam Irvin were going to kind of save us from, you know, the teeming masses, but, the idea of um, the entire Republican party rushing beneath the banner of an authoritarian fascist, you know, and serving as his mob lawyers, that was, that would have been very unusual. There was one guy on the Watergate committee who basically 
Ed, Ed Gurney, who sounded like a Fox News commentator, right? Compare that to, you know, the Intelligence Committee, which was like the greatest bastion. Uh, it was created as a bastion of, of bipartisanship, this kind of completely apolitical body that was meant to oversee the intelligence agencies after the church committee revealed that, you know, the CIA was, you know, assassinating foreign leaders, you know, and to see what happened to that, you know, during um, the investigations of Donald Trump uh, and, and the Republicans just completely sounding like, you know, spouting off like John Birch society style nonsense, you know, every time they had the microphone night and day really compared to Nixon. Buckley was around. I mean, there were, there were some of those sort of uh, relatively fringy. Yeah. Well, the, the Buckley thing is really interesting uh, because even though in a lot of my work and a lot of other historians works, we've been kind of tearing down the paradigm that somehow, um, Buckley represented this kind of hard and fast wall, you know, had set up this hard and fast wall between mainstream and extreme conservatives, right? By talking about how permeable that was and how they used each other uh, and, you know, the extremism of National Review. I mean, if you write what it wrote, if you read what it wrote about African decolonization, it was, you know, it was as racist as any Klan publication, basically. But at the same time, the role, the ideological role William Buckley played in the conservative movement was to present this um, respectable face. And he played that role very well. And he did have this disciplining power, you know, and I would give the example of Rush Limbaugh, who I listened to and have listened to a lot ever since he went national. And he, William Buckley was the only person he spoke about deferentially, he'd call him Mr. Buckley. And when William F. Buckley died, it was like 2010. And it can't completely be an accident that it was almost immediately afterward that the Tea Party became much more feral, you know, than, than, than previous, you know, conservative mass movements and mass spokesmen. And Rush Limbaugh became just much more willing to uh, troll the most feverish of swamps. And I can easily imagine a William F. Buckley, you know, uh, after he, you know, say called Chelsea Clinton an ugly dog or something like that, calling him and saying, look, optics are important. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about optics, right? I mean, what's going on underneath the lid, you know, is, is, is just as cockroachy, you know. But um, there was a sense pre-Trump that uh, there are certain things you uh, might believe, but you don't say. Buckley played a similar adult in the room position. Right. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I'm struggling right now to think of somebody who might have filled that vacuum to some degree. I mean, I guess for like the people who were kind of like sitting in the uh, editorial suites and the production, you know, offices of the networks, I think John McCain, probably anyone who, d- who tried that, you know, was, was, has, has basically been purged, you know, disappeared, you know, like uh, Fred, uh, uh, Jeff Flake. McCain is a, is, is kind of the perfect example from the standpoint of it, you know, there was a real, shift in the power dynamic when Trump is able to go out there and joke about about him being a bad pilot right I mean right. That, that represents just a total uh, th- right. that mo- exact almost exactly yeah a and, total change in power and the basic dynamic as I put it is you know um since Goldwater you know uh left the Republican Party into, as a bloody pulp bu- bloody pulpy mess on the floor in 1964 so much of conservative politics has a bit about kind of hiding your hand and coming up with, you know, basically a way of speaking 
that is uh, that distracts from the ultimate policy aims, right? Which have never been particularly popular. What Trumpism is about is you know lowering that wall, right? It's the the dog whistle become the train whistle. Uh, it's you know George W. Bush is Islam is a religion of peace. You know uh, Donald Trump is they're sending their rapists. And you know as we've seen to anyone who you know pays close attention to you know, what's going on in the, uh, you know, in, you know, deregulation, you know, the aim is the same fundamentally, you know, um, the policies are similar to any, what any conservative would try and pursue. The personnel is absolutely, you know, it's like, I, I was just reading an article about in uh, Vanity Fair, a big article that came out a few years ago. And it was this head scratching article about, you know, whatever happened to, to, to Robert Barr, you know, why, why is he working for Trump in the first place? He's such a respectable guy and he doesn't need to do this. And, you know, in fact, he turns out to be the quintessential Republican who is just biding his opportunity to, you know, put down the, put down the lesser, you know, lesser breeds all the time. And, you know, now that he has this opportunity to like basically have his king, you know, he's become, you know, uh, the keeper of the king's chamber pot with alacrity, you know, and clearly, you know, that's what he was going for all the time. And if it meant, you know, sounding like a respectable grown up upholding the institutions of the Justice, Justice Department under George W. Bush, that was fine. Right. But once he had an opportunity to, you know, completely rip those norms to shreds, he had no compunction of, uh, compunctions about doing it. That's a feature, not a bug. And the fact that like the, the establishment was like, thought he was one of them, you know, tells more on the establishment than it does on Bob Barr. Something I keep coming back to about the current moment is that the majority of the criticisms I see leveled against Trump right now are about, you know, about discourse, are about the things right. that he says. Where, you know, well, where, even, even his big supporters are like, oh, I don't like how he tweets. Yeah, you know, I wish he was more polite. There's a reason why, you know, every basically Republican senator, I mean, even, you know, even Flake to some degree, I think, you know, was voted pretty closely along the lines of, of Trump's policies. Yeah, I reviewed uh, Flake's memoir and um, basically his complaint about Trump on immigration is that we had a pretty good deal doing going when we when we basically let cheap labor go back and forth across the border whenever we wanted to exploit. I mean, it's, he always says that. And there's all kinds of things he says in the book that are downright sadistic, you know, but it's a different brand of conservatism. Do you get the sense that being steeped in history for, for so long, writing about this so much and writing specifically about the conservative movement has made you, your own political stance a little more pragmatic of just sort of having mm. the, kind of the larger historical context of things. Precedent is, is maybe a good way of framing it of you kind of recognizing that like, yeah, maybe the, um, some of the language has changed and obviously, you know, the media landscape has changed, but if you pan the camera back a bit that maybe this, this moment isn't entirely unprecedented. Does it make you maybe a little bit more moderate than you might be otherwise? No. No, not at all. I think that understanding this history inside and out, I think it's made me grasp uh, the extent to which movement conservatism is kind of a Leninist formation that's aimed at, you know, undoing everything that's good, decent, and true in the American experiment. Uh, 
and uh, has made me, you know, all the more impassioned to uh, defeat it, you know. So, I mean, um, in that sense, I've become more immoderate. But I think that what you seem to be getting at is maybe um, I do have a little bit of a this too shall pass, you know. I'm pretty good at calming people down. I could say, you know, at least, you know, a million Americans aren't, you know, killing each other in battles like, you know, in the 1860s, right? But at the same time, I see those kinds of energies and divisions that, you know, um, led to, you know, almost a million Americans killing each other as pretty much structural features of the American constitutional order. Maybe I've become a little more Zen about, you know, what the Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci, the Marxist, uh, a writer and philosopher from Italy in the uh, uh, early 20th century called uh, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Pessimism of the intellect basically means, you know, just actually being astringent, steely eyed, not flinching at looking at the facts and, and, and following them wherever they take you, even if they're uncomfortable, you know, uh, and optimism of the optimism, optimism of the will means understanding that human history changes you know, human beings create history, you know, we're not just uh, victims of it. And seeing myself as a citizen uh, amongst, you know, like among citizens and believing in political activism and believing that understanding how American history has worked and human history has worked means lots of very unlikely radical changes, you know, happen, you know. Uh, are made to happen, you know, like emancipation, you know, like the New Deal, you know, um, like the Civil Rights Act, that things that seemed inevitable seemed anything but, you know, on the cusp of their achievement. Activism is an interesting word, and, and it does mm-hmm. sort of get back to that Woodward thing a little bit of, of you know, of the role that, that he played, and again, this this three-dimensional chess. Do you consider yourself to be an activist, an activist and is, and is yes. your writing in any way activism? I, I don't have a good answer about whether um, all my writing is activism. Some of my writing is, is absolutely activism. I mean, for example, you know, in Chicago, my hometown, uh, in, you know, 2014, when Rahm Emanuel uh, was running for re-election against, you know, a, a progressive candidate, you know, I, I wrote tons of articles for Indies Times Magazine uh, about Rahm Emanuel's wickedness, you know. And, you know, I'm on the board of Indies Times Magazine now. I'm becoming president of the board next year. And that's an activist magazine that basically sees itself as an organ for social justice movements, right? Writing history, I've never had any trouble telling the story. I want to tell it without really thinking about um, how it will move readers one way or another in terms of what kind of action they take after reading it. Uh, And I don't really have a good answer for where the distinction is uh the fact that people trust me as a writer i think is uh just attests the the possibility that you know 
I've gotten the balance okay. I do get the sense, obviously, you know, the, the, these four books have taken a, a large chunk out of your life to write. 23 years. So yeah, nearly a quarter of a, of a century to write that that perhaps your the ways in which you address the conservative movement have changed and yes. that you have become more... I don't know if embolden is necessarily, maybe embolden is the right Well, word. maybe I just understand it better. Maybe I come closer to the truth, right? I mean, if, if my work is less flattering to conservatives than it was when I first started doing it in 1997 in my first book, where I frequently took conservatives that I was interviewing at their word about what was going on, maybe it's just because I've winnowed away distortions and, uh, you know, come closer to the way it actually was. Maybe I've gotten better at it. You didn't get a sense that early on as you were kind of testing the waters for this, that you were more more concerned about how the conservative movement would react to such a book? I have always been gifted with the ability not to care much what people thought of what I wrote, which is pretty remarkable. Because I'm not, you know, I'm in some ways I, I'm, I can be quite thin skinned. I certainly care what, you know, uh, my, my dad thought of my work, you know, mainly that he didn't read it, you know, that, that could, you know, like send me into tailspins of despondency, you know. So it's, it's not like, um, you know, I'm just like this, had this alligator hide. But um, when conservatives read Before the Storm and praised it, that was great. But when, you know, conservatives read Reaganland and consider me, you know, Beelzebub, that doesn't really concern me either. You know, when, you know, radicals think that I'm, this is more like in the articles, right? So like, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of contention going on the left right now among, you know, basically the role, basically what, what it means to be a radical and socialism and what it means to be in the professional managerial class and the working class. And the other. there's lots of ideological debates that I'm part of. And when, you know, I'm considered a neoliberal shill, you know, Democratic Party hack, as Glenn Greenwald called me, you know, that <laughs> doesn't particularly concern me either. I just, I enjoy the fight. I don't take it too seriously. I don't think what intellectuals do is all that important, ultimately. So, no, uh, for whatever reason, I just am able to write through it all and, and, and tell the truth as I see it without fear or favor, hopefully. And... um I'm really grateful <laughs> that I don't dwell on that kind of stuff. Your parents were are conservative. They're gone now. They weren't. They were conservative growing up. They weren't like ideologues or anything like that. They my, they were very strong kind of right wing Zionists. Uh, my dad was a small businessman who deeply resented you know federal intrusions into his prerogatives. Mm -hmm. He was, I think, held his working class employees into a bit of contempt and fear. He kept a gun in his desk. And I grew up in a very racist city in which the kind of uh, I, I had to learn that 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 Jews were liberals uh, by reading books about books, books about it. But um, my dad always told me that uh, I would abandon these left wing views once I had to meet a payroll. And when my dad retired, and didn't have to make a payroll anymore. In fact, he became a aficionado of MSNBC and hated George Bush. Uh, so we were much more on the same page, uh, by the time he left us several years ago. What happened to you? What happened to me? Politically. How did you veer so far left with, with conservative parents? I think the big issue, a lot of the matrix for this 
was in fact like synagogue. And um, uh, I think that very early on, I decided that people in my parents' circle and the temple we belonged to were hypocrites, which is kind of a puerile kind of political, political category, right? It's kind of sure. Also, like a te- uh, yeah, exactly, adolescence. Yeah, but I mean, that, I think I think that that was the spark um, that gave that. That's where I kind of began to hone kind of a critical temper. You know, that, you know, like uh, the hypocrisy of, you know, making their kids go to Sunday school, but, you know, not really having any religious practice themselves. You know, that's silly, you know, whoever. I get that now, you know, why a parent would want to do that. But certainly, you know, um, the first political issue that made me mad was the kind of jingoistic veneration about around Israeli militarism. And like my dad uh, would make um, Israeli plank tanks and plane models. It would hang like F-15s, Israeli F-15s from the ceiling of his bedroom, you know. I found it very easy to, uh, you know, not identify with that. And, you know, I came up, you know, with Reagan as president. And, uh, you know, I knew I didn't like him. I certainly, um, you know, you know, I'm a jazz musician. So I think that like, you know, I identified with African-American culture and it's hard to do that without kind of, thinking about uh um things like racism and repression and white supremacy once that original sort of uh moral stake is kind of driven into the ground and that's your foundation you know then you know you develop an identity um from there on out and you know i just remember sitting around in high school and during my free period in the library, you know, reading the nation, you know, reading the new Republic, you know, finding the radical books that were in the high school library, you know, there was one about, there was a, there was a, this is far left book. I remember reading called um, uh, the anti-communist imperative in which it was, it was just, now I realize it's kind of this Chomsky and kind of critique of uh, uh, American foreign policy as, you know, form of imperialism, you know, and I was like, Oh, interesting a little little anarchist perhaps yeah and so you know like a lot of people growing up i didn't really respect my parents and didn't see this world the same way that you know they did yeah and uh you know went from there is there any way in which i mean you know like uh, we've we've obviously sort of charted your kind of continued left progression through the process of writing this or at least further disillusionment with the conservative movement but is there any way in which uh steeping yourself in this for so long was able to make you maybe a little bit more empathetic with your parents' positions growing up? Well, I'm empathetic with conservatives, right? I mean, I couldn't do what I did unless what I do, unless I did some very hard intellectual and psychic work, you know, trying to figure out where they're coming from. Right. I mean, I'm a liberal after all, that's what we do, you know, at our best, you know? Um, So yeah, I mean, I can certainly see why my dad would be, you know, want to run his business, you know, without interference. I certainly can see why there was class conflict between him and his workers, right? Uh, You know, I can think about, you know, um, why people who, you know, retreated behind their white picket fences in the suburbs might see that as a logical thing to do, right? I mean, as far as, you know, kind of empathy with my parents, I mean, that's just, part of the strange wisdom of, you know, kind of growing up, you know, I mean, I realized, you know, by the time my mom died that, um, 
they were free spirits in a lot of ways, you know, in a way that I didn't quite appreciate, you know, as a typical kind of suburban kid who, you know, thought of the suburbs as, you know, this prison of conformity. You also don't associate the term free spirit with the conservative movement all that much, generally. Well, um, actually, uh, you know, I mean, look at a figure like Barry Goldwater. I mean, Barry Goldwater was absolutely, you know, a free spirit. You know, I mean, he was a free spirit that exercised it by, you know, driving, flying his private plane all over Arizona, you know, and a kid who never had to carry cash when he was a kid because he had, you know, his family had, you know, accounts in every store because he was basically like a little aristocrat in Phoenix. But a big part of the appeal, and that's one of the, one of the, one of the themes of my first book, a book, big part of the appeal of conservatism in the Goldwater era and also with Reagan too, was to young people, right? And uh, that conscience of a conservative, you know, the reason it became so popular among college students, the same college students who, you know, might, might be attracted to Catch on the Rye, say, was that it was a critique of bureaucratic conformity. You know, I mean, I might not agree with, you know, the alternative it posed, right? But the idea, the, the metaphors that Barry Goldwater used were very similar to the metaphors that someone like Mario Savio used. You know, throw, your, throw yourself against the gears of the machine. You know, that kind of libertarian, you know, they want, you know Barry Goldwater was very, um, very big on the idea that social security numbers were this kind of like uh, force of regimentation, you know, which you can certainly see, you know, someone on the left, you know, kind of this, you know, sort of anarchist tending ideology, you know, identifying with. So, yeah, I mean, there are plenty of free spirits on the right. Yeah. Are there any major figures in there that you came out feeling more of a sense of kinship with than you hmm. went into? That's really interesting. Um, well, I certainly, I was always very proud when people told me that they always just like saw Nixon as a villain, but they kind of empathized with him after reading Nixon Land. And I wouldn't say I feel a sense of kinship with Richard Nixon, but the categories I used to kind of describe you know, uh, Nixon's mental map of the universe, like the, the Franklins and the Orthogonians, right? Based on the, the, the social club he created because the cool kids wouldn't let him into it, their fraternity in college, right? I mean, I say we're all Franklins, we're all Orthogonians, right? I mean, certainly, you know, his, his grasp of uh, his own sense of dispossession, you know, people who always, you know, kind of, you know, it's like, it's, 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 it's like being in high school and, and hearing on Monday morning about the great party and, and you never, you know, you never heard about it on Friday, you know? So, I mean, I can certainly, you know, um, feel a kinship with that. You know, if you can't feel a kinship with that, you know, then, you know, I don't know who you are. The kinship with him is that he's very, he's very clearly a tragic figure. <laughs> There's no, well, that too. Even, even though he rose to the, the, the ranks of the presidents, the president you of the United States. You have to figure out a way to feel a kinship with people that you spend years with, you know, it's yeah. like, I mean, Ronald Reagan, this, you know, kind of lonely kid who, you know, basically had to, you know, like read books in order to come up with a narrative that made sense from this, you know, incredibly chaotic family situation. Yeah. I mean, is there anyone on the right that I emerged thinking, oh, this guy is really a hero, you know? I don't think so. I think I, you know, had a lot of, I have enormous respect for a lot of them uh, for changing the world, you know, for their, you know, the, for the brilliance of which they did. So I think in this book, Phyllis Schlafly, you know, unbelievably, you know, brilliant person who, um, you know, had enormous moral failings, but, 
um, what she did. I say that, you know, she, I, I, when, when, when Mrs. America came out and I was interviewed by the New York Times, I said she was the most effective political organizer in American history. I heard you speaking about her recently and, and, you know, I, I think you, you feel like she almost got a raw deal from like Gloria Steinem or just historically in terms of the actual power. Yeah, that's really movement. unfortunate that the, the Gloria Steinem and Eleanor Smeal, who are, you know, ob- obviously great heroes who've done more yeah. for human rights you know, in their life than I could ever dream of. By the way, if, if you if you read Gloria Steinem, who is an amazing journalist, who never got credit as one of the pioneers of the new journalist journalism, if you read her her book, her 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 long article about going undercover as a Playboy money, bunny that came out in the early '60s. But I was referring to his her interview with um with uh with Patricia Nixon that came out in New York Magazine in 1968. It's just like masterful. And Patricia, uh, I mean not Patricia Nixon, uh, Pat Nixon. And Gloria Steinem came from very, you know, kind of humble beginnings and was a very self-made intellectual in a lot of ways. But their insistence that the people who defeated the ERA were actually fronts for corporate interests and the insurance interests, there's like no evidence to support it. And uh, I can understand why they would want to believe that's true, but it's not really feminist you know it was actually women you know it was actually women uh organizing themselves you know and unless you grasp that there are left-wing people in the world and there are right-wing people in the world and you know being born to a certain identity doesn't determine in advance what you know vision you're going to have of the universe then you're not gonna it's not liberal (laughs) you know ultimately you know it's like that sort of empathy you know that sort of possibility of understanding all different ways of being human it's not something really conservatives do very well, but liberals should be able to do it at their best. Do you think you the, you could have written as effective of books if it was a political ideology that you were more aligned with? Like I, I ask that because yeah, you know, I, I know I don't think it would be interest me as much. I, I, this may or may not be a good parallel, but I know that part of the reason why you stopped when you did is because you didn't want to write a part of history that you lived through. Right? Is it a sense that like in in either respect that you can't yeah. Read too- to the subject yeah i mean i think i've always i've always likened my work to be basically being an anthropologic anthropologist of a, a foreign tribe of americans and that's where the pleasure kind of comes for me you know i you know written about and for you know liberals and leftists but it just doesn't give me the same thrill i've never really gotten to the bottom of you know why that's the case and what would happen if i tried to write about a hero um i don't know maybe i just revealed they had feet of clay you know you write about uh carter to some degree you know he's yeah and i i actually uh came away with uh not a little bit of contempt for him in a lot of ways how so well i think that his most powerful animating passion and ideology was austerity the american people had to do more with less and the fact that um his answer to the crisis of inflation was that it was caused by budget deficits. And so, you know, the government had to do less in order to cure inflation was tragic because it was false, right? I mean, there's a syllogism, you know, inflation is caused by the government spending too much money, right? Well, now we have practically no inflation, right? In the last, you know, 20 years, basically. And we have massive government deficits. So clearly that theory wasn't true. But holding to that theory and, you know, 
the Federal Reserve Chairman that he appointed Paul Volcker holding to the theory that, you know, we needed basically to um, induce misery in order to, you know, slow down the economy. It was unnecessary, right? It was, uh, he caused unnecessary pain uh, and he's never atoned for that. At what point was it clear that you had a four volume series on your hands? I was much, I was much in the psychic state that you're in today. <laughs> How's that? Well, I, I, I it was, it was ter- terrifying. You know, it was, it was like, I was like, oh, I'll just, you know, squeeze my way to November 1980 in the next, you know, like, uh, yeah. I mean, it was just clear that, 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 that I had kudzu, you know, I was like, you know, with the sorcerer's apprentice mm-hmm. and I had to kind of go to my agent and my, my, uh, publisher and say I couldn't fulfill my contract. And that was terrifying. Uh, that was a terrifying day. In fact, it happened right. The thing that happened like the day before uh, their realization was I saw Argo, a wonderful movie about the rescue of the Canadian, the hostages uh, who you know snuck into the Canadian embassy. You've seen it. Yeah. 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 The uh, Ben Affleck. Yeah. And I was like yeah. thinking about, I was nowhere near to like, you know, getting to that point in my research. And I was like, you know, holy cow, I, you know, I was in denial and it was suddenly, you know, I was flushed with the realization that this was not going to happen in the way I intended. You're saying specifically that, that you set, you set out to cover that long with time span in a single book and it was clear that you couldn't. Okay. Seven. Yes, exactly. 73 to 19. It was supposed to be a trilogy. Yeah. And the trilogy became a tetralogy. Sure. I I guess the question I'm getting at was, you know, when did I think that I wanted to write three books? From the beginning yeah, that you wanted. Okay. Yeah. You, you knew from that you beginning. wanted to, from, to devote. For that some reason, I don't know how I conceptualized a, a originally a trilogy that covered Goldwater through Reagan. And I don't know how that seemed obvious to me. My model was definitely Taylor Branch's Parting the Water series, America and the King years. And uh, that seemed like the story I wanted to tell. And once that became my commitment, I really never had any doubts about it. Having spent that much of your life focused on the series specifically, is there some like postpartum depression in having, in having finished this? Well, I have had postpartum depression after finishing books, Nixon land specifically, terrible depression, but, but you knew I, in that case that there was another one. coming. Yeah, yes. Um, but I think it was, that was, how is this book going to be received? Did I pull it off? You know, but I'm in a place in my life and my career um, you know, Knockwood, where, you know, I just feel very confident about who I am and what I'm doing in my life. So uh, not this time. No, I'm ready to move on to my next adventure. Do you have a, a, an idea? Did you know, was it, did you have something on the back burner? Did you know what your next project was going to be? Yeah, I've had a couple big projects that I've been kind of saving string for, and they all tend to be like super absorbing projects that, you know, just kind of like absorb every intellectual, you know, kind of aesthetic fiber of my being. That's kind of how I do it. Well, I want to write a short book uh, called The Republican Playbook, in which I just kind of like concant, you know, what I've learned about how Republicans do business. And that will be, you know, for liberals, right? But I do have a I had two pro- big projects and one, I think I'm going to wait, you know, I think I need 20 years more kind of wisdom and knowledge to, to, to do, and it'll cover the sweep of American history. And it'll be about why America is, has traditionally been in such denial about the level of conflict, you know, that's kind of built into American society and how consensus ideology is, um, how important it is to uh, American politics. But I think first I want to, um, 
write a book about, um, so I'm very into um, Karl Polanyi. So Karl Polanyi was uh, an Austrian sociologist and social theorist who wrote a book about the Great Transformation. And basically, he has a whole self-contained theory of um, how free market society became market society. And uh, it's it's, uh, a very devastating critique of basically what he calls, because that's what was called then liberalism, but what we call libertarianism and the idea that markets are the natural way to organize society. And he, he has a historical account of how um, violent and um, uh, how political turning say the English countryside into a place of uh, where people were forced to enter into wage labor uh, was. And um the most exciting part of that book, I think, is the 1830s when uh, industrialism really is kind of spreading around the world. And so I want to write kind of a historical book about the 1830s uh, that kind of like talks about all these really fascinating kind of revolutions that were kind of happening around the world around the introduction of market economics and industrialism uh, into all sorts of different societies. Uh, you know, 1830s was when the Trail of Tears Tears was. You know, the Chartist movement in England, which was the, really the first kind of big working class political movement. You know, um, you know, there was a famine in Japan because of the overturning of traditional, you know, kind of um, farming relations. So it's basically I call it like the guns, germs, and steel for 1830s industrialism. That'll be like maybe like a 500 or 600 page book, but it'll probably take like, you know, five years to do. I got my hair cut yesterday, finally, after like five uh, months. I was in a, a barber shop here in Astoria and I, I heard all the barbers were arguing, they were arguing politics with each other. And one of them, you know, just had the very, his, his, his view on everything was that, you know, that, that, that nothing can change because that's how things are. And I think that there's just this failure for people to imagine that, uh, there are any systems outside of market systems or outside of capitalism. Yes. And that's going to be the kind of the programmatic aim of that book will be to like basically understand where capitalism comes from. Polanyi is basically an alternative to Karl Marx without the kind of mystical mumbo jumbo about, you know, capitalism ending, you know, because of the contradictions between classes, you know, and it really points the way to a society, which were um, a lot more, um, Uh, mindful of kind of creating just and equitable relationships while recognizing, you know, kind of the reality of, of markets. Cause it's really basically the way markets work is it's, they, they tend to go in one direction. Once the society, you know, has that kind of loss of innocence, it's very hard to kind of un, you can, you can decommoditize, decommoditize uh, spheres of life. Like, which, you know, that's what European social democracy does, you know, it kind of says, wow, well, basically medical care is not going to be a place where it's going to be, it's going to be social. It's not going to be uh, capitalistic. So you can do that, but you can't kind of turn a market society into a non-market society, but you can make markets work in in ways that um, create well, more well-being for everyone. I I think one of your, your biggest strengths as a writer is, is taking historical material and and making it, you know, incredibly engaging and, you know, doing that through a lot of the, the, the cultural context and other things. Do you, do you think that you'll be able to use a similar lens when discussing something that's just so economics heavy? I mean, obviously that's... No, it's going to be a different kind of book. 
it's 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 I don't, i'm not gonna try and like it's not gonna be um immersive for the reader in the same kind of way uh so it'll be a lot more um argument based uh it's um yeah it'll it'll just have a, a different mode of address a different kind of uh authorial kind of command so is it's an economics theory book then? No, no, it's going to be history. You do have a, a central thesis that you're working off of? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, you know, like when, when market society intrudes on non-market society, interesting things happen. And uh, uh, yeah. Do, do you feel like it will be engaging for you in the same way? I mean, obviously, like if you're going to commit yourself to writing a four-part book series of these very oh, thick yeah, volumes, absolutely. you have to be into it. Oh, yeah, totally, it'll be... It'll be amazing. When we were setting up the interview, you, you know, you sent me a, uh, I, we were talking about process and you sent me a, a clips of you playing jazz piano, which, you know, I think like perhaps slightly tongue in cheek saying this is, this is my process, but is there truth to that? Did you feel that uh, being a musician does in some way kind of inform? Yeah. I mean, you know, like Ronald Reagan said, you know, I, people said, how can you be a, the pre- president? You were an actor. And he says, he said, you know, I don't see how someone can be president if they haven't been an actor. Right. I don't understand how someone can be a writer if they're not a musician. It's all about time. You know, it's all about rhythm. You know, it's all about how to organize tension and resolution. You know, I mean, everything, the ethic that I try and take into the world is, is, is based on how I perceive jazz musicians to, to, you know, work in the world you know the the idea that you know life has to be improvisation but you have to prepare for the improvisation right and the importance of kind of you know being in the movement having an ethic of um mutuality you know uh and uh care for one another um and it's got to swing you know it's got to you know have a propulsive energy to it and when it comes to writing prose, you know, writing is mind control. You know, it's like you are telling someone what to think at a certain movement, what to feel at a certain moment. And that, that idea of kind of suspending time in someone else's head is precisely what a musician does. You know, uh, there are three, four sentences. There are four, four sentences, you know, uh, long sentences, short sentences, long phrases, short phrases, you know, dense passages, you know, airy passages, singing passages, you know, I mean, it's just, to me, it's, it's, it's all about music. <laughs> <laughs>